1: Hi, you're listening to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast brought to you by The Local. And it's a pretty important episode too because there are some important events and law changes in France that we need to keep you up to date with. Firstly, the country's farmers are staging a siege of Paris and no one quite knows how it's going to play out. How long this siege will last for... Or whether the country is headed for some serious unrest. Again, we'll do our best to explain all the latest developments for you. And in another big change affecting foreign residents in France, and of course people who might want to move here one day, the government's new immigration law has toughened up French language requirements for certain residency permits and gaining French citizenship. We'll run through exactly what changes. And as well as that, we'll find out the story of the so-called belly of Paris. And on the subject of bellies, we'll tell you about an important feast day in France coming up. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and joining me will be my three AI colleagues, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Now, we'll get on to those important immigration changes that are impacting foreigners in France. Jen, they're pretty big. Just give us an insight.
2: Yeah, so basically the immigration law is increasing language requirements for for some residency cards, and for citizenship. But we've gotten a lot of emails on this. We've got a lot to say about it. We'll get into it later in the podcast.
1: Brilliant. We'll come back to you shortly, Jen. It really is a big subject affecting lots of readers. But we need to start off with the siege of Paris, Emma. The official siege began on Monday afternoon, although farmers in France have been staging protest by blocking main roads and motorways since last week. Bring us up to date, please, Emma.
0: OK, so yeah, this is the farmers' protests, which we talked about a little bit on last week's podcast, but it has developed since last week into the Siege de Paris, the Siege of Paris, uh, which perhaps sounds a little more dramatic than it is. We're not actually at war here. But farmers converged their roadblocks at the eight motorways that offer access to Paris, basically aiming to block all traffic in or out of the capital from about 30 to 40 kilometres away. They also plan to blockade a few other key sites it's near the capital, uh, such as the Rangis food market. Calling it a siege, it, it obviously sounds very dramatic, and clearly all unions do this, but I have noticed that French unions are especially good at employing poetic language to increase the impact of their protests. And of course, for French people, this has a, a historical reference too. Paris was besieged during the Franco Prussian Wars in the 1870s. The last time, the siege lasted for four months, and by the end of it, the people in Paris were so hungry that they killed and ate all the animals in the zoo. So uh, hopefully, what happened this time.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, I did see one farmer quoted on the news as saying their intention was to starve Paris, which sounds ominous, but nobody is eating rhino au just yet, Emma. But it's not just Paris, right? There's protests across France?
0: No, definitely not. So since last week's episode, we've seen demonstrations all over France and they've really upped in intensity. So we've had motorways blocked. We've had rolling roadblocks all over France. Some roads have been completely blocked for more than a week now. And in other areas, the blockades have kind of moved around. The protests have also moved into the town centres. There have been rolling roadblocks on city ring roads in towns including Toulouse, Bordeaux, Lyon, Lille, Marseille, and protests in town centres as well, often outside the préfecture. These have mostly involved farmers dumping tons of waste, rotten vegetables, manure, setting fire to tyres. And in the town of Ajon in the southwest, they even symbolically hanged a wild boar, although it was dead when they, when they hanged it. Several of the motorways leading in from Spain, uh, we've seen foreign registered lorries stopped and their goods looted and burned. And farmers have also blockaded the port of Calais, preventing lorries crossing over to the UK. The biggest union, the FNSEA, they say they want to continue these type of actions until at least Thursday when there is a key EU meeting on agriculture, but some of the smaller and the more radical unions they say their blockades will remain in place indefinitely.
1: Right, OK. So look, this is obviously a big challenge for the new French PM, Gabriel Attal.
0: Hasn't he made any concessions yet? Hasn't it calmed the anger? He has made concessions and no, it has not calmed the anger. Yeah, this is the really the first crisis that Attal has faced as PM. And let's remember, he's been in the job for less than a month. Last weekend, he did a big tour of the blockade points, especially in the south. He spoke to lots of farmers, you know, he told them he was listening to them, he'd heard their grievances. He presented a 10-point action plan, which included permanently cancelling a planned hike in agriculture cultural diesel prices, and a simplification of the rules and regulation. He obviously hoped that this would calm things down, but it has not. Hope is now pinned on that key EU meeting on Thursday, since a lot of the farmers' grievances are actually about EU rules. Emmanuel Macron will be attending that, and apparently he's been on the phone a lot to the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, over the weekend, trying to sort of lay the ground for some, some movement. Because it's actually quite hard for the French government on its own to make enough concessions to the farmers, since their complaints, they're really no longer about just specific rules that they want changing, it's more about the overall problem of it being very hard to make a living as a farmer. And this week, we've also seen Jérôme Bail. He's the farmer who kind of kick-started these protests down in the southwest. He's been talking more generally about life as a farmer. And in fact, his own father, who was a farmer too, committed suicide because of the pressures of trying to make a living as a farmer.
1: Mm, he's turned into kind of one of the leaders or the voices of this protest. Is there any sign, Emma, that this could become more widespread, other movements, other grievances, professions getting involved?
0: Yes, we have seen some groups join in with the farmers, taxi drivers in particular. Taxi drivers, they've staged rolling roadblocks in cities, including Bordeaux, Toulouse, Lyon, Lille, Toulon. They kind of already had their own grievances going on about fuel prices and also some changes to rules on patient transport trips and how they get refunded for those. So they're really just kind of joining in with the farmers to increase the visibility of their own cause, but they're certainly helping to create even more mayhem on the roads. We've also seen fishermen joining in some of the demos. They're angry about a temporary fishing ban in the Bay of Biscay, which has been put in for environmental reasons. And the CGT Union has also announced that it may join some of the actions, especially blockades of power stations and oil refineries. The CGT Union, which is one of the most hardline in France, you'll remember them, of course, they were the driving force behind the blockades of the oil refineries last year that saw filling stations across France running out of petrol. It kind of remains to be seen whether they'll be able to muster the numbers to cause that much disruption this time, though. So, yes it's definitely expanded since the farmers first began their roadblocks last weekend some people are comparing these to the yellow vest protests which rocked France in 2018 2019 I don't really think these are the same thing or have the potential to be anything like as big but I'm very much going to defer to, to John on that since he's our re- our resident gi expert
1: yeah we'll put that question to John shortly emma the obviously the protests have caused you know a huge amount of disruption on the roads you know motorways blocked caused a lot of travel headaches for the people in France are they supporting the farmers?
0: Well yes I mean on paper the farmers have a lot of support. Uh, there was a poll for Le Figaro the newspaper and that found that 89% of French people support the protests but What the farmers say they want is support at the supermarket. They want people to stop buying cheap imported food and instead support the farmers in a more practical way Mm. by buying French produce, even if it's more expensive. As I said, one of the major parts of this grievance is how hard it is for farmers to make a living. Last year, two-fifths of farmers earned less than €4,500 a year. And at least part of that is to do with food prices. French farmers, they're bound by these very strict environmental animal welfare laws And they say they're just facing unfair competition from cheaper foreign imports. So they want people to uh, demonstrate their support in a more practical way rather than just telling pollsters, yeah, we support you. They want to buy French produce. For the government, however, that's going to be a hard sell because food inflation has hit France quite hard in the last year. They're already under a lot of pressure from people on low incomes who say they just can't make ends meet.
1: Mm, yeah, I saw one French political analyst basically summing that up, Emma, saying everybody supports the farmers until they get to the doors of the supermarket.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, one of the most pertinent cartoons I saw was a, a drawing of someone in the in the supermarket talking to a TV camera saying, oh yeah, we support the farmers absolutely 100%. Oh, look, those chickens from China are only 350. Let's get two. Um, so it's kind of the, the yeah. hypocrisy of the public there.
1: Yeah, so public support for the farmers, but a lot of frustration as well from the farmers' point of view about how much support they get. I think this is a, a good time to to bring in politics expert and farmerphile John Litchfield here. John, we're just talking about the siege of Paris by French farmers. How do you see this playing out, John? And what does the French government need to do to quell these protests?
3: Well, it's a bit of a hostage to fortune, but I don't see it lasting very, very long. Nor do I necessarily see it being a complete Siege either, you know, I think it's more Symbolic than anything else, but we'll see How it plays out as the week goes on I think that there are two or three things That the government could do to concede to The cereal farmers. I mean, you know, what Is bizarre, which is not much mentioned in the French media, is that we're not talking about Suffering farmers here, you know, the, the, there are Suffering farmers in France, and they Were the kinds of farmers that Gabriel Attal, the Prime Minister, went to see there in the southwest last week. Who are, not all, but many of them Satisfied by the stuff he's done for them the people who are blocking Paris are people in 100,000 euro 200,000 euro tractors you know they're people from the big cereal farms some of which are millionaires not all of them but they're certainly not suffering farmers and what are they complaining about they don't they want to be able to spray pesticides more than they're being allowed to at the moment including near other people's homes now you know I think if people knew that, the support for the farmers would not be quite as strong as it is. I think they also know that they're potentially cruising for a bruising if they they really annoy people. And therefore, I suspect that some kind of concessions will be found, but that this is the beginning of a much longer crisis about agriculture, not just in France, but in Europe generally, and that we'll see similar events in the months and years ahead. John, plenty of comparisons
1: are being made with the Gilets jaune in French media.
3: Is there any fair comparison there? Any similarities? Is this Gilets too? No. I don't think so. I mean, in a sense, the Gilets jaunes kept changing their mind about what they wanted. They hated the leaders that emerged. There was never very clear what the government could do to buy them off. I think that there are sort of people within this farming movement who are politically driven and who will also be very reluctant to stand down. But I think that the farming unions themselves are quite structured and they have a long history of dealing with governments and governments have a long history of dealing with them. It's a nasty dispute, it's a complicated dispute, just because the unions don't Agree, like Shirley Jones didn't agree about exactly what they want, but I, I still think that this siege of Paris will be lifted reasonably soon, I suspect, and that some kind of concessions will be made. But as I say, that the, the bigger, more intractable in issues behind this, to the extent that you know, what are we talking about? Are we do? Can we have a more environmentally friendly farming? Can you have farmers uh, who can make uh, a living from the land while keeping prices down and uh, not using intensive methods? All those are kind complicated questions, which are very difficult to solve. And I think they're not just French questions. You know, they apply right across Europe and across the world. And I think that, therefore, this dispute, in a sense, in the wider sense, will carry on. But I don't think it'd be like the gilets jaunes go on for, for months or, or years. And I don't think it will come into the cities either. I think it will be a question of demonstrations on motorways outside. Dom, just a, f- a final question. Uh, we're talking about the kind
1: of policing of these farmers' protests. The government, the interior minister, has asked for a kind of light touch, which hasn't been the case in other kinds of protests, you know, in France in recent. In history, why is that? Why are they going soft on farmers?
3: Well, because farmers do have this romantic image and they, they feel that if, if they were to sort of send in the gendarmes and the police too uh, high-handedly or heavy-handedly that would possibly increase sympathy for the farmers rather than reduce it. You know, to be fair, the early days of the Gilets jaunes movement, the policing was pretty light touch. I remember the first day in Paris and the Gilets jaunes were allowed to go everywhere, block things, no much police to be seen until they tried to attack the Elysee Palace and then the, the gendarmes got, the police got involved. Then the next week, there was a lot of violence from the Gilets jaunes before there was a lot of violence from the police in return. So you can say that the, overall, the farmers have not been attacking the police. There's been some examples of attacking public buildings, attacking foreign lorries, and so on. Now, Dharmana has said he's not going to stand for that any longer, that they can demonstrate, they can block, but they can't attack things, and they can't attack public buildings, or they will be in trouble. So, the light touch is being firmed up a little bit as, as we stand. And I think this is more because this is, you know, farm protests are more or less are a kind of almost a sort of political ritual in France. And as long as the rules are observed observed on both sides, I don't think it's in anyone's interest for them to get too violent, either for the state to get too violent or the farmers.
1: Thanks, John, and we'll hear more from you later in the episode. If you're British and living in France, you will know that banking is not as straightforward as in Britain. Depending on your situation, there may be special banking or administrative requirements. Often it can be confusing. Whether managing a move to live and work in France, purchasing a holiday home or retiring, BritLine can help. Founded in 1999 as part of Credit Agricole Normandie, BritLine's advisors can help you establish a new life in France, all in simple, plain English. To find out more, head to BritLine.com. Emma, you mentioned the farmers planter blockade Rangis to the south of Paris. Most people in France know what Rangis is, especially farmers and Paris restaurant workers basically a giant wholesale market just outside Paris, nicknamed Le Ventre de Paris or the Belly of Paris. Tell us a bit more about it.
0: Yeah, giant is the word. The Marché Internationale de Rangis, to give it its proper name, it's the largest wholesale market in Europe. It covers 234 hectares and 12,000 people work there. It supplies fresh produce, so fruit, vegetables, cheese, meat, fish, daily to around a quarter of Paris and pretty much all of the Paris restaurants get their fresh produce from there. If you've driven out of Paris going south, you will probably Probably have seen signs for the market. The site of Rangis itself, it's about 20 kilometers south of the city, just on the A6, and it's been on that site since 1969. So previously, the, the was the huge wholesale market was actually in the city itself. It was at Les Albes, which these days is a shopping centre and mm. the most confusing metro station in Paris. Possibly the most confusing metro station in the world, actually. Mm. Anyone who's had the misfortune to go through Châtelet-Lézes will know what I'm talking about. But basically, the market outgrew its city centre site and it moved out of the city in 1969, and there was this huge removal operation, uh, which they call the Déménagement du siècle, the, the Move of the Century. About 30,000 people were involved, 1,500 transport vehicles, 400 removal lorries. Actually, the army was brought in to oversee this enormous move, which kind of really disrupted the traffic in Paris for several days. Paris itself obviously still has lots of smaller markets that sell fresh produce, but the wholesalers go out to Rangis. It's so well known that it's always known just by one word. And it features in lots of films as well, actually. There are several documentaries on the market itself and how it all works, which are pretty interesting, but it's also quite a popular site for filming for movies that are set in in or around Paris. I saw one recently by uh, Cédric Clapiche. It's just called Paris. It's kind of an ensemble love story, but one of the characters works at Orangis and it's quite a nice insight into the market and the market culture.
1: Okay, and it's got another use apart from food, has it? Yeah, it does have another
0: slightly grim distinction. It's a big site and it's got a lot of refrigerated areas, so it serves as the emergency overflow morgue for the city of Paris. Yeah. Some of the bodies were stored on site after the heat wave of two thousand and three, during which fifteen thousand people, many of them elderly living alone, died. And actually during the first wave of the COVID pandemic in twenty twenty, space was readied at uh, she used to store bodies, but actually in the event it wasn't needed and the city's morgue
1: coped. Mm, that was a slightly grimmer answer than i was expecting <laughs> sorry Emma, um just a final question about Rangis. can i just pop down there and get some crisps um well it's a fresh
0: produce market so no crisps oh. uh but if you wanted to get some delicious french asparagus say some farm raised beef some artisan cheese that's still no actually oh. uh it's a wholesale market so it doesn't sell in small quantities directly to the public you'll definitely have eaten its fruit veg or meat though because pretty much all of the, the good paris restaurants shop there Mm. but if you want to see it you can do a guided tour of it there are a few companies that offer tours you do have to book in advance and you have to go with a guide but you kind of you know you get to see all around the market there's a few tasting opportunities as well it's an early early start though uh, because it's an early morning market so it's like 6am or earlier so you would have to get out of
1: bed quite early for that one that might make it impossible but it sounds definitely well worth a visit thanks for all that emma Now, last week, we promised to bring listeners the latest on France's controversial immigration bill that for several weeks now has been closely examined by the country's Constitutional Council or Conseil Constitutionnel to see whether it was all legal under France's constitution. On Friday, the results of the council's examination were published. And Jen, you can bring us up to date. How many of these fairly controversial measures made it into law?
2: They scrapped a lot. In fact, the Constitutional Council rejected more than a third of the total bill, including some of the most controversial aspects like the requirement that foreigners be resident in France for five years before qualifying for benefits like family allowances and the proposal to make non-EU students pay a refundable deposit in order to get a study visa. So the updated version of the law was promulgated on Saturday in France's Journal Officiel, which means that it's now officially law. As for all of those amendments that got scrapped, it's worth remembering that a lot of them were added kind of in the 11th hour by senators, which meant that the version of the bill that the Constitutional Council examined was a lot further to the right than Macron's original bill.
1: Mm, now, those are some of the bits of the bill that had been making headlines. But there was one thing that kind of went under the radar in France, Gen, but is of major importance to foreigners like us living here. New language test requirements that will affect many foreigners living here. Tell us more.
2: Yes. So I would say this is the part of the immigration law that is going to have the biggest effect on our listeners, both to people applying for residency cards and to people like Emma and myself who are in the process of applying for French citizenship. So this part of the bill was in the Macron government's original. Original plans. It's related to the increasing integration goal. Essentially, the new immigration law brings tougher language requirements for three groups of people. People applying for the multi-year carte séjour pluriannuel, people applying for the 10-year carte résidente, and people applying for French citizenship. So let's start with the pluriannual. These are applications that are going to have to show an A2 level, so the first-time application, on the DELF language scale. And so basically, the A2 level, that's the second beginner level on the language scale. Then the ten-year carte de résident applications, this is for the first time, so not for renewals. These people are going to have to show a B1 level in French. That's the first intermediate level instead of the previous requirement of A2. And then the next change is people that are applying for naturalization. And they're going to have to show the second intermediate level of French, B2, instead of B1 which was the previous standard.
1: Now this all sounds complicated and we should push listeners to articles on our website that explains B1, B2 and Emma I think you've just published a test have you that readers listeners can uh, test their language skills.
0: Yeah I pulled this together just from some of the like the past papers which I used myself when I was practicing for my exam Uh, and it just gives you a bit of an idea of what these levels actually mean and whether
1: you could reasonably pass one. I'm going to test myself uh, later on. Jen this all sounds very complicated though.
2: Yeah. And like you said, we've got an article on the website that goes into it in more detail because there are some groups that are exempt. And there are also some aspects that are not 100 percent clear as of today. (laughs) So we've requested clarification from the interior ministry. We're hoping to hear back from them soon. Mm But to take an overview, these changes are mostly going to impact people that are already living in France. Usually if you're coming here for the first time as a non-EU person, then you would be on a visa and then onto a short-term card. And these don't have any language requirements and that's not going to change. The French government really wants to see people living here long-term, uh, able to show higher language integration. So let's take that pre-annual card that we were talking about before. Usually this is only available to people who have come to the end of their short-term one-year card. So personally, I fit into this category. I'm currently on a one-year salarié, so that's the employment card. And this year, I'm going to switch on to the pluriannuel card, which is the multi-year one. It's good for four years. This status of the pluriannuel, it's not available to everyone. So retirees on a visitor card, they can't switch on to a pluriannuel version. But after five years of consecutive renewals of their short-term card, they can switch on to the 10-year carte residente.
1: And this 10 year card de résident, is this another one with a higher language requirement?
2: Yes, it is. So the tenure carte résident, it's only available to specific groups after three years. So most people apply to it with the usual procedure, that is, after five years of consecutive residency. Previously, this card did have a language requirement. It was that you had to show an A2 level of French. Now, people are going to have to show a B1 level for the first time that they apply for it. The other addition was a requirement to respect the values of the Republic for everyone applying for any kind of residency card in France. But it's not entirely clear this stage, whether that's just going to involve signing a form or taking some kind of civics test. Again, we asked the Interior Ministry for clarification. Hopefully, we'll have more information soon.
0: And we probably should just say, actually, that Brits in France who are covered by the Brexit withdrawal agreement, so who have the special Brexit card, they sometimes they call it a warp or the article 5. Ans. Brits who have those kind of cards are not affected by those. You can just carry on with your, with your special post-Brexit card.
1: That's good to know. There's one other area, though, that I am interested in. I know you two are interested in, and many of our listeners, French Citizenship, Uh, you're both applying this year I believe Jen you've already sent in your application Is something changing for French citizenship in terms of language requirements?
2: Yeah, so this has been really frustrating for a lot of people, myself included, because some aspects of this are not entirely clear yet. And it takes a long time to put your dossier together, and it's a lot of hard work. The previous requirement was a B1 level in the French language. So that's the first step of the intermediate levels. Now the new requirement is B2, which honestly, it does feel like a pretty big leap, especially for a lot of people that are still learning French. Now, again, like we mentioned, there are some kinks in the application of the law that need to be worked out. We contacted immigration authorities to Find out whether this new rule applies to everyone or if it's only for the people that are applying by décret, which means by residency. So that would mean potentially people applying via marriage could still have to just show the B1 level. We need to get clarification on that. We've reached out to find out exactly when this is going to be put into practice, who's going to be affected by it. So if you already sent in your application or if you're sending it in soon, we'll have that information on our website. So keep an eye there.
1: Okay. And like I said, hopefully we'll have all these clarifications uh, on our website as soon as we get there. And there's many articles explaining all these levels. And like I said, that quiz where you can test your language ability. Finally, Jen, a lot of our listeners have been curious about the plan to create a visa exemption for British second homeowners so they could spend more than 90 out of every 180 days at their French properties. What happened to that? Was it scrapped?
2: Yes, it was rejected by the Constitutional Council. Now, this one is interesting because, uh, like a lot of the amendments that they scrapped, they didn't actually get into the content of the amendment. The council members explained their decision by stating that the provisions related to conditions of stay in France for certain British nationals have, quote, no link even indirect with those mentioned above in Articles 1, 3, 6, and 7 of the initial bill. So... Basically, they scrapped it on procedural grounds because it wasn't close enough to the original bill that the Macron government put forward.
1: Okay, so does that mean there may be some hope that this amendment could come back, seeing as though they didn't actually look at the contents of it?
2: Well, there is no right of appeal for council decisions. So in that case, it's not coming back as part of this existing immigration law. But new legislation could eventually be created to address the situation of second homeowners. For example, Parliament could pass a standalone law to create a specific long-duration visa for second homeowners. Uh, If they don't do that, then similar plans could be added to another bill, but it would have to be a bill that's covering similar issues. So we don't run into the same problem of a legislative rider or something that's not at all similar to the existing bill that's being put forward. Unfortunately, neither of these things are on the docket as things stand, and it's to say that the french government has a lot of other priorities like the rise of the far right the wars in ukraine and gaza the budget deficit etc
1: british second homeowners a fair way down the list let's bring in john again here john this immigration bill has had macron's government in crisis at times both when it was voted out in parliament before it was even read, and then when it was hijacked by the right and made a lot tougher than he originally intended in the end as jen explained many of those added measures were scrapped so can this be seen as a victory for macron
3: well, it's scarcely a defeat in the sense that the bill that he and, and the and, and the interior minister were trying to get through parliament for the whole of last year has virtually survived, yeah, unscathed from the decisions made by the Constitutional Council. What they cut out was almost entirely except one clause, I think, the stuff that was put in there by the right, which Macron wasn't in favour of, nor was Domina, and they agreed to take it tactically because that was the only way they could get their original bill through. Now, that caused a lot of grief for them, obviously, on the left, but also within the, the left-leaning and centrist parts of their own party, who were very angry that the government, even temporarily, was condoning fairly nationalistic, racist-sounding language in, in the bill. So to that extent, it may have been long-term damaging also to Macron, even though he's got what he wanted. You know, this will be remembered. And when it will be him, that will be standing in the 2027 presidential election, but when a Senate's candidate does ask probably for left-wing votes against Marine Le Pen in the second round, a lot of left-wingers will say, well, why should we vote for you when you're prepared to put stuff that, that like this through, even temporarily, which is, it sounds very much like the kind of thing Le Pen wants herself. So it's been a tactical success, maybe a long-term strategic defeat. It's been a very bizarre episode, I think. The bill as it now stands is perfectly reasonable. The law as it now stands is perfectly reasonable. I think that the, the centre-right behave rather stupidly in wanting to try and get all this extra stuff in, even though they were told quite clearly that it would not survive the Constitutional Council's filleting of it. So it's certainly a great defeat for them. I don't think it's a defeat for the Pen, unfortunately. I think sort of in political terms, atmospherically, it counts as a bit of a victory for her as well, unfortunately.
1: John, we've been explaining how this bill has made language requirements tougher for foreigners seeking residency permits and also French citizenship. Is this a sign of things to come, kind of in France? Will the demands on foreign citizens to integrate become ever greater?
3: Yes, but that doesn't surprise me so much. You know, France has always taken the view that it's a sort of it's supposed to be a monolithic country. They don't like the idea of there being communities in France officially in the way that's kind of more accepted in Britain and the US, say, different sort of racial communities making up the country. The idea is that everyone is French. That's the Republican idea. And therefore, the idea of, of making stronger demands on people who are already here or who want to come here to be able to at least speak French and understand French culture doesn't strike me as a dramatic departure. Um, obviously, toughening the language up, it is a, a sop maybe to the right and the far right. I'm not sure it's going to make a huge difference to the general approach of French governments over many years.
1: New legislation in France to tackle climate change is changing the way you let or sell properties. From next year, you will need to provide an energy performance diagnostic certificate with a rating above a G grade to potential tenants or buyers. If your property is modern, this won't be a problem. However, bringing older properties up to that energy efficient standard could be complex and costly. Luckily, there is help available. To help you plan your renovation, BritLine, the French bank with British thinking, has created a handy-on Line Guide. Their tool will help you estimate your diagnostic grade, identify any grants or loans you may be eligible for, and identify local tradesmen. Head to BritLine.com, where in their help and resources section, you will find several blogs on the subject. Now, Friday, February the 2nd, is an important day in the French cultural calendar. It's actually got a name. It's called La Chandeleur, and it involves eating a lot of crepes. Tell us more about it, Jen.
2: So Chandelier has actually been around since the Roman times. And it's a Christian holiday, although you don't get the day off work. So it's supposed to be the day that people mark when Jesus was presented at the temple in Jerusalem. But even before that, the start of February involved pagan rituals celebrating the fertility of the earth and the beginning of the end of winter. The crêpe bit supposedly began in the 5th century when Pope Galatius I started the Festival des Chandelles. The tradition was for a candlelit procession to move through the streets of Rome Uh, which involved placing blessed candles in churches along the way. Galatius also decided to hand out galettes, or savoury crepes, to poor pilgrims arriving in Rome on that day.
1: Mm, What's interesting about Le Chandelier is not just about crepes, there's also a lot of superstitions involved, right, Jen?
2: Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Groundhog's Day in the US. Apparently, if it rains on Chandelure, then it's supposed to continue raining for 40 more days. If it's a clear day, then winter is over. And if it's cloudy, then you get another 40 days of winter. <laughs> and then in different parts of France, there are specific superstitions about the candles. So in Burgundy, if someone manages to carry their Chandeleur candle home from church without it going out, then superstition dictates that that person will certainly stay away. This year. In the Southwest, if a candle's wax only dripped on one side of the candle during the religious procession, then that means a loved one is going to die this year.
1: Yikes. That's pretty grim. Now, do most people get involved in these superstitions or do people just stuff their faces with crepes?
2: I think these days most people focus on the crepe, uh, but there are some superstitions about those too. For example, you're supposed to eat your crepe in the evening, not in the daytime. And when you toss your crêpe, you're supposed to use your right hand while holding a piece of gold in the left. That's supposed to be for good luck. <laughs> and there's also an old tradition of putting the first crêpe in a drawer or on top of your wardrobe to attract prosperity in the coming year. Though I think that this superstition maybe was invented by some hungry mice. <laughs>
1: Aye, or kids. Any other strange superstitions you've come across in France, guys? I read the other day that apparently if you stand in dog poo, which... Is quite frequent in Paris. If you stand in dog poo with your left foot, it's actually good luck. Whereas if you stand in dog poo with your right foot, it just means you've studied dog poo.
0: Yeah, it's just not good luck though,
1: is it? It's It's, not, just, it? it's just terrible. Like stuff <laughs> like the one that you don't they say, when do a bird craps on your head, it's good luck. It's not. It's the worst luck going. Yeah, it's very uh, bad. Uh, are the French superstitious bunch? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. There's quite a
0: few fun ones. Although Friday the 13th is actually considered lucky in France rather than unlucky, as it is in the UK. And the one that always confuses me is the lucky horseshoe. So ho- horseshoes are lucky in France, exactly as they are in England. But it's the other way around. So like in England, your lucky horseshoe, you put it upside down, so it makes like a U shape. But in France, you're supposed to put them the other way around and i'm like what should i do do i put it the french way because i'm in france or do i put it the english way because i'm mm. english so how how do i create the look
1: interesting and there's the one where if you don't look in someone's eyes when you chin you say cheers you get seven years of bad breath or something
0: not bad breath Jen. What is it? but you know what it is ben say it bad sex yes ben <laughs> yeah this is why people make like really quite intense eye contact when you Uh, do the toast in france
2: to to be fair i've also heard that one with just general bad luck if you don't toast and you look and you fail to look in someone's eyes then you'll just have bad luck for seven years too well i can't
0: think of worse luck than having bad sex for seven years so
1: there you go i think that's another good point to end this week's episode of talking france we'll be back with more talking points from the country next week